Pet Resource Radio is sponsored by La Mega KC, Kansas City Spanish radio station. Listen online or at 100.5 FM. We are also sponsored by our friends at 1KC Radio. Listen on 100.1 in the KC Metro or online at 1KCRadio.org. Today we'll be talking with Tim Percival, the ASPCA's Manager of Disaster Response, about their efforts rescuing animals in the aftermath of disaster. That and more on Pet Resource Radio. From the Pet Resource Center of Kansas City, I'm Sierra Howe. And I'm Dave Shapiro, and yes, indeed, welcome to the show. We're coming to you from the headquarters of the most busiest place ever, the Pet Resource Center of Kansas City. We're a nonprofit whose goal is to keep pets and people together through supportive services. Sierra, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm a little sleepy, as we just discussed before we started recording. Get you recording. some coffee. The boss isn't here. We can have as much as we want. That's true. He'll oh, never know. Man. This is exciting. <laughs> But uh, we're um, we're going to talk disaster relief and rescue for pets here in a bit. But how about some pet news? Sounds good. First up, a finance company in California has agreed to pay more than $900,000 to settle allegations that it was illegally leasing dogs in Massachusetts. Oceanside, California-based company Monterey Financial Services LLC got busted by the Massachusetts Attorney General's office while they were investigating another company for the same thing. To get off the hook, they'll stop collection action on leases, cancel around $700,000 in outstanding debt on 211 dog leases, and transfer full ownership of the dogs to Massachusetts residents. In addition, they will give $175,000 in restitution to consumers and pay $50,000 to the state. Pet leasing is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It works like a car lease. You get a dog and enter a contract making monthly payments. However, just like with a car, the pet is only yours for the term of the contract and can be repossessed if payments aren't made on time. High interest rates actually make it less affordable than it seems up front. And more than that, shady business practices have led some folks to think they're actually just taking out a loan to acquire the pet rather than leasing the pet. For all these reasons, leasing dogs is illegal in Massachusetts and six other states. So, you know, only 43 more to go. Quote, while we disagree with the state's findings, Monterey said in a statement, we have elected to come to an agreement to move away from this issue to best serve our clients. Monterey has and continues to strive to employ business practices in full accordance with all applicable laws and regulations, end quote. Which, of course, means nothing because they were taken to court and ultimately are just paying money to make it all go away because nothing says honest business practices like having to make restitution to consumers and the state. Attorney General Maura Healy said in a statement, quote, families in Massachusetts looking to get a dog should not be trapped in leasing agreements that are harmful, expensive and illegal. In addition, there are tons and tons of pets waiting for homes and shelters, and it's much more affordable than leasing a pet, especially in the long term. Even if you have a particular breed of dog in mind, you can often find them in a shelter, or you can look for a breed-specific rescue. Two things. Yeah. One, why is this the first time I'm hearing about dog leasing? Right. And two, why would somebody even want to do that? I don't know. And it seems crazy to me. It's a very it's it sounds very much like a predatory like a like a payday loan situation almost where they get you trapped in a situation, the interest rates are incredibly high, 
you know, yeah. they don't necessarily disclose everything mm-hmm. to you. And then there you go. It, I was very surprised to find that there are only six states that make it illegal. Yeah, that's insane. That seems like a huge area for animal welfare in general because, like, that's not good for a dog, you know? No. So, I yeah. Don't know. Mm. Mm, bad stuff. But you make a good point when you say that if you're looking for a particular breed, you can work with people at the shelter. Yep. That's what they're there for. But speaking of shelters, living in one can be extremely stressful for a lot of pets, but one volunteer from Michigan stepped up to make all the difference for a two-year-old pit bull named Starsky, and it involves a princess tent. Starsky first entered iHeart Dogs Rescue in Animal Haven with his brother Hutch. But when Hutch got adopted out, the stress of living in the shelter environment alone took a toll on Starsky, and his behavior started to get worse. He'd lunge at folks when they'd walk by, so staff moved him to an isolated kennel near an exercise yard where they thought he'd be more relaxed since he loves playing outside. But he could still hear other dogs barking, so Megan Sink, a volunteer adoptions counselor, bought him one of those collapsible princess tents to give him a place where he can feel safe. And by the way he curls up inside the tent with all of his favorite toys, it seems to be working. Quote, Volunteers are able to do so much to help pets be happy and comfortable while they're in a shelter, like by giving a nervous dog a special cozy unicorn tent he can hang out in, said Kelsey Spain, Senior Manager of Marketing for American Pets Alive and Human Animal Support Services. Quote, even the best animal shelter can be a stressful environment for pets. That's why we're very grateful not just to shelter staff and volunteers, but to people who welcome foster pets into their home, end quote. Starsky is still looking for his forever home, so if you're listening, head over to iheartdogs.org to check out how cute this guy is, and maybe, just maybe, you'll be taking a trip to Michigan sometime soon. Mm-hmm. I love this dog, yeah, but I'm I'm sorry I can't go to Michigan to adopt him because my house is too crazy. Right. But uh, it, oh. it's sad. I know it's like the pictures, you just kind of feel bad. Yeah. If you were a dog, you wouldn't want to be in a shelter, but... It's just such a stressful environment for it them, is. generally and I, speaking. And I love how compassionate people who work at shelters are because yep. they go above and beyond staff and volunteers um, to make these pets feel comfortable until they do get adopted. And it also helps, what's the word I'm looking for? Like promote them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that the... Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it helps, this ultimately helps them find their people. Yeah. So... I wish he could have got adopted with his brother, though. That I was kind of bummed out about that. I actually saw something about an organization here recently that works to make sure that bonded animals mm-hmm. get adopted together. And maybe they ran some tests and thought they would do fine they apart. Would be okay. Right, but but yeah, yeah, it's always he's going to find his people. We'll be fine. Maybe it's you. <laughs> maybe it's you. Maybe by the time this episode comes out, he'll already have a home. Yeah, that'll yeah. be that would be really best sweet. case scenario. Best case scenario. Um, I tell you what, why don't we go talk to Tim Percival? Alrighty. There's been a lot going on in the world that has sparked the conversation we'll be having with today's guest. We're talking disaster preparedness and relief with Tim Percival, ASPCA Manager of Disaster Response, to discuss the work they do for to protect the bond between pets and people when help and compassion are hard to find. Tim, welcome to Pet Resource Radio, and thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. 
So I'd like to start things off by having you talk a little bit about the ASPCA's long history of compassion and how it's evolved into the renowned organization it is today, one that helps hundreds of thousands of animals every year. How long has the ASPCA been around and what's your mission? So the ASPCA has been around since 1866. It was actually one of the first societies to establish in, the, in North America, and it's now one of the biggest in the world. Uh, the mission is to provide effective means for the prevention of cruelty to animals throughout the United States. And that's been the mission since 1866. Now, we provide a lot of different services, not just disaster response. We do uh, cruelty response and recovery, forensics. We do um, adoptions, and I could go on and on. And so when exactly did you realize you needed to assemble a field response team to bring relief to pets, people, and other animal welfare organizations who were overwhelmed during times times of disaster and despair? Well, me personally, I've been doing this since about 1989. So it was probably around 1989 after the Exxon Valdez oil spill that I realized this. Nationally, it really came to play after Hurricane Katrina. This is when the federal government created the Pets Act, and there were several teams from various organizations that were created to better equip animals um, impacted by disasters. And so what did you learn from those experiences that uh, made you realize that the organization needed to be be doing these things on a regular basis? Well, there was a lot. Um, Hurricane Katrina pretty much, it's changed the way that um, organizations looked at animals impacted by disasters. Um, One of the things, one of the most important things that we learned is that people will not evacuate their homes without their animals. So communities need to be better prepared to evacuate with their animals. When I say communities, I mean everybody from the pet owner to um, local shelters to um, emergency management and other government needs to be better prepared for that. Uh, People want to be with their their animals um, after they've been evacuated. So trying to keep them in a shelter together or close by needs to be a stronger priority. That was something that didn't really take place much in Hurricane Katrina. And then rescue teams need to work collaboratively with each other and with government to ensure that animals separated from their families can be reunited whenever possible. Yes, of course. We come across those cases every day where, you know, people are willing to face homelessness before giving up their pets. So always good to be prepared for anything that comes someone's way. But what are some other events that fall under the big umbrella of disaster. Could you give us a few examples aside from um, the ones you've already given? Sure. Um, You know, disasters, we have both natural and man-made disasters. And that includes, like like I've mentioned, hurricanes, but wildfires, tornadoes, floods, ice storms, wind storms, um, and earthquakes can go on and on. these many with these 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 crises impact people and shelters and government in different ways um, when it comes to those types of disasters. Would you consider the COVID nineteen pandemic to be one of those? For sure, the COVID nineteen was a um, a very different type of disaster, and I was one of the first people when when COVID first happened. We were concerned that. Um, that might transfer from animal to people being a zoonotic disease. We weren't too sure what it was. Yeah. And so we were, in, we were working with that pretty early on. <clears throat> and then we also provided all kinds of, of support, giving like $7.5 million um, in pet 
for pet owners to recover and also had supplies across the U.S. for people that were impacted by that disaster. Oh, wow. That's a really big number. I can't imagine the the amount of impact that, that it had on families across the nation. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty remarkable. We had um, free pet food that we were giving out in different areas across the nation and um, to see how, you know, people weren't working and it was difficult for people to care for their animals. So to see the impact was just, it was enormous and it was uh, really heartwarming. What kind of support does your national field response team provide? What does it look like? Well, we do all kinds of stuff. So um, we do animal evacuation and transport. And this is probably when you think of disaster where you see us the most, we'll be out in the boats, um, rescuing animals or out in the wildfire rescuing animals. And then we also transport animals um, pre-storm. So if there's a hurricane coming in, we'll try to get a lot of the animals that are in shelters to other parts of the country that aren't impacted. And then um, we'll also transport during or after if needed. Um, we also do sheltering. We have vet care. We have other resources. I mentioned food distribution. That's a new one that we're doing that's um, really important. And then we can also bring subject matter experts in um, to help people uh, at all levels, including emergency management, shelters, and other rescue um, organizations. And this can happen before, during, or even after disaster. Perfect. And so I imagine that your team sees a lot of things that can are pretty difficult that can make it hard to sleep at night. Do you have any anecdotes that you'd like to share about that? Yeah. You know, um, one of the things that when we, when we go in, um, we're, we were helping animals, we're helping families and we're helping communities. And I know that, um, they're on the recovery, the road to recovery after we, um, get there. Mm -hmm. Um, this road may be very long, but I know that they're in a better place today than they were yesterday. Exactly. And that's one of the that's one of the biggest, most important things for me is is I know that we're doing good and, and they're on the road to recovery. And I'm sure you all are pet owners yourself. So I feel like if I were in that position, it would be hard for me to not relate and be affected by the emotional toll that that has to take on someone. What's the overall experience like? Well, it's both physically and emotionally exhausting. Um, you know, some of the rescues that we have, um, like last weekend we had a rescue. I worked an 18 hour, 18 and a half hour day and worked over 75 hours that week. Um, people that's see the photos crazy. of people and yeah, and, and that's, uh, that was pretty extreme. We had a lot going on. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just the rescue. We had a conference and everything. So there's a lot going on, but you know, people see us in that flood water that I mentioned earlier, um, and a lot of times those are in hurricanes, so it's really hot and we have to wear personal protective equipment, which makes it even more hot and humid. Um, so it's a, a physically, we have to constantly monitor it for heat exhaustion. But emotionally, we, we have the highest of highs um, when we reunite an animal with their family. And then with the lowest of lows, we, those, pe those families keep looking for their missing pet and we can't find them. Yeah, man, I can't even imagine. So... You know, obviously that moment when they're reunited is what keeps your team going. For sure. You know, um, it, the, in the Hurricane Ida, for example, um, and this is on our website, We, I was out on a boat and we came across a woman that wouldn't evacuate. She had a dog and, and I believe it was four cats 
and she wouldn't evacuate because the people wouldn't take her animals. So we were able to help her and I'm still in contact with her today. And to see the recovery that she's, she's had and the improvements that she's been able to make on her home to better prepare for the next hurricane is remarkable. And, and those are the reasons that we keep doing this. Yeah. I mean, that's it. It's all aligns with how we work here at Pet Resource Center of Kansas City. Those are the moments that really keep us going and motivate us to get up and come to work the next day, even if the last day was difficult. Um, but let's wrap things up because we're getting closer to the end of our time. Let's talk about how pet owners can prepare for national disasters. So you have a lot of helpful resources on your website. What are some things that they should have in case they do need to evacuate? You know, first of all, I want to mention that um, we did a survey last year and it showed that 80, 83% of current pet owners um, are not prepared for disaster. So I would say having, that neither am I. So I'm part of that 83%. <laughs> it's, it's, it's huge. And, you know, I, again, I see the worst of the worst. So one of the things that I've noticed, I've, I've been in the business for a long time. And one of the things that I noticed is um, giving a full list is overwhelming to people. So start one thing at a time. When you go to the pet store, get an extra can of food or extra bag of food, or maybe you get a Ziploc bag and, and make that part of your, your kit. And eventually you build that up to where you have leashes and you have your crate and you have paper towels and litter boxes and everything that you need. Just mm-hmm. buy a little bit more at a time so you don't have to buy it all at once. That's smart. I remember my mom growing up, she was always one to have a little emergency kit in her car. And one thing she included in that was pet food, dry dog food, and then the collapsible water bowls. So, For um, sure. Another really important thing is to have cash. And that's something that a lot of people don't think about. Along yeah. with your, your personal, you also have to have a kit for yourself. But um, so many disasters, there's not electricity. So you can't uh, use your credit card. So having some cash is going to be important. What about pet vaccination records? Is there any need oh, for, for those? For sure. Having your, your animal microchipped, having ID tags, and then having um, all that information up to date is really important. Along with, like you said, having uh, vaccination records um, is going to be really important uh, mm-hmm. during a disaster. So you can. it's good to have a, a photocopy of that, but then also take a picture of that stuff and keep it on your phone so you can Perfect. access it um, in times of need. And lastly, how can those listening support the ASPCA and its international disaster relief efforts? Well, there's a, a couple different ways that I can think of. Uh, first of all, is to help, is to donate. Um, and when we go to disasters, um, we 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 try to use that money the best that we can, um, and we try to re- donate get donations from a national side and not take from those local resources. So if you go to um, ASPCA.org slash donate you can go you can do it that way but then also there's other ways to get involved um if you go to aspca.org and type in nfr that stands for national field response you can learn more about our team and you can learn how to volunteer with our team um, if that's something you're interested in or you can go to the the website and type in volunteer and there's multiple things that will come up and different ways to volunteer with our organization um, and then lastly, you can go to the website and type in jobs and see what kind of career opportunities are available within the organization across the United States. 
Oh, perfect. And we'll make sure to put those links in our notes on the episode so that people can easily access those. Tim, I want to thank you so much for being on Pet Resource Radio today, but also for the invaluable service that the ASPCA provides to pets and families experiencing hardship all across the world. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Today, we're talking about the attack of the clones. No, not arguably the worst Star Wars film ever. We're talking about cloning pets, something that's becoming more and more popular despite the cost. How much money are we talking? Viagen Pets and Equine, the first company to offer commercial cloning in the United States, charges $50,000 to clone a dog, $30,000 for a cat, and $85,000 for a horse. So let's talk nuts and bolts. There are a couple of different techniques, but this is generally how it goes. A cell nucleus is deposited into a harvested egg that's had its genetic material removed. It's nurtured in a lab until it's an embryo, and then it's deposited into the surrogate mother who brings a clone to full term. And let's be clear about this. These are eggs harvested from a living dog and then deposited into another living dog. Dogs, as you probably know, can't speak, so they can't consent to these procedures, and there are ethical concerns about putting a living animal through either one of those procedures under those conditions. But more than that, there have been scientific studies suggesting that clones might be more prone to disease, and there is a failure rate when the clones aren't born healthy. One Columbia University report put the average success rate at 20%. That means multiple attempts with multiple surrogates. So who's cloning their pets then? Celebrities like Simon Cowell and Barbara Streisand have been upfront with the fact that they've cloned their pets. Good old Babs has actually cloned her dog Samantha twice. And a number of social media influencers have taken the plunge as well. And as more examples of high-profile clones show up in the wild, the idea gets normalized. That means more and more people want it, the technology becomes more affordable, and more companies start up. You see where all of this is going. So this is a real thing that we need to think about. Technology is amazing and wonderful and brings us so much. And the fact that this is even possible is incredibly fascinating. But just like Dr. Ian Malcolm said in Jurassic Park, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could – They didn't stop to think if they should. More than the ethical concerns surrounding the methods used to create clones, there's the social and ethical issue of our society simply having too many animals. Our entire organization is devoted to keeping pets and people together because there are so many people struggling, and we don't want them to have to give up their pets. Shelters are overcrowded with stray animals. And yet we have people spending $50,000, an amount of money that would do so much good for so many people and pets to get a genetic copy of their beloved pet. Which isn't really the same thing. Pets are who they are, not just because of genetics, but because of the things they've experienced, the bonds they've created, and the life they've lived. It's no different than humans in that manner. Nature and nurture are both at play in the creation of an individual, whether that is a human being, a dog, or a cat. It's just not right to act as though a beloved pet could ever be replaced because they can't. And anyway, there are thousands and thousands of beautiful, unique, loving animals waiting in shelters for someone to care for them, to give them a real home, ready to live a real life. They deserve to know that love and comfort. So however we move forward as a society in this regard, we will still be here making the pets that are already here the happiest and healthiest they can be.
And now we say goodbye to you, friends. Big thanks again to Tim Percival from the ASPCA for joining us today. You can check out all of their disaster relief work at ASPCA.org. As for us, we're a nonprofit trying to keep pets and people together, and you can help. Just go to PRCKC.org and you can donate, volunteer, shop our online store, and more. If you're listening to us on your favorite podcasting app, you know the drill. Please rate us and leave us a review to help other folks find us. And for the latest info, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at PRR Podcast on both platforms. So, tail wags and purse to you and yours. And as Winnie the Pooh author A.A. Milton wrote, some people talk to animals. Not many listen, though. That's the problem. Take care. Pet Resource Radio is a production of the Pet Resource Center of Kansas City, written, produced, and hosted by Sierra Howe and David Shapiro, recorded, edited, mixed, and mastered by Dave Shapiro, music by Hazel Raw Musical Industries, a.k.a. Dave Shapiro. More info at soundcloud.com slash Hazel Raw Musical Industries. 